sponsored by Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about mainstream media platforms are comparing Russian President Vladimir Putin to Adolf Hitler. Also going to be uh, touching on the character and uh, history and composition of the current Republican Party. And as always at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. Well, in the beginning of the 19th century, U.S. President James Monroe explained to the U.S. Congress that all of Latin America would be the backyard of the United States. This would be the establishment and the beginning of the Monroe Doctrine that drove U.S. foreign policy toward the Americas, the the actual Americas, not just this little piece of rock in between Canada and Latin America for centuries and even to this day. The Monroe Doctrine also extended to countries in the Caribbean, as they were often important strategic locations for military operations. It is the Monroe Doctrine that became the force that drove U.S. imperialism in the global South after many countries shrugged off their Spanish colonial oppressors, only to have to turn around and fight the United States. We see this in the ongoing struggle of Puerto Rico to gain independence, as it has remained a colony of the United States since 1898. After four centuries of Spanish colonial rule, the pro-independence rebellions of 1860 and 1898, some colonial reform, the establishment of the first national political parties, the abolition of slavery, Puerto Ricans were finally granted self-government by Spain when the Carta Autonomica, a form of constitutional autonomy, was approved by the Spanish Cortes in November 25, 1897. Nevertheless, by the time of the first elections in March 1898, tensions were already building between Spain and the United States, which brought on the Spanish-American War. The political and military strategies of a decaying Spanish empire and the emerging regional power of the United States at the end of the 19th century placed Puerto Rico right along with Cuba at center stage in the fight between the two imperial powers for domination in the Caribbean. The Spanish-American War lasted four months, culminating in the defeat of Spanish forces in Santiago de Cuba in Cuba, after which 18,000 U.S. troops with a naval escort departed for Puerto Rico from Guantanamo Bay and from the east coast of the United States. They landed in Guanica Bay in Puerto Rico on July 25, 1898, occupying the territory, even though surrender from the Spanish was already guaranteed after the Spanish defeat in Cuba. The U.S. claimed that they were liberating Puerto Rico from Spanish colonial rule, the same claim they would make for invading and occupying Cuba, but Spain had already granted Puerto Rico's government-limited autonomy. The U.S. really invaded and occupied Puerto Rico to control the islands for their militarily strategic importance to expanding U.S. naval dominance in the Caribbean. 
U.S. naval power in the hemisphere was the strategic basis of U.S. military doctrine and foreign policy, starting with the Spanish-American War and throughout the late 19th century as the U.S. Navy grew more technologically advanced and more dominant and powerful. But of all Spanish colonial possessions in the Americas, Puerto Rico is the only territory that never gained its independence and still has not today. Although Puerto Ricans have had U.S. citizenship since 1917 and does have some local control, all the fundamentally significant decisions about the island, its politics and its economic issues are made in the United States. The people who live on the island of Puerto Rico, Boricuans, cannot vote for president. They do not have any voting representation in Congress, and yet they can be drafted and sent off to fight in any war that the United States chooses to fight. They're still a colony, but of the United States, and they continue to fight the Monroe Doctrine that the U.S. used to justify its annexation as this country's backyard to this day. Now, other countries, though, have been more successful in opposing U.S. imperialism and neo-colonization as three countries in the global south in particular have shown us and are models for what is possible in a post-colonial world, even as they continue to fight against persistent U.S. imperialist aggression. And those countries are Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua. And Nicaragua is of particular importance as the 43rd commemoration of the Sandinista Revolution was just observed. The victory of the Sandinista National Liberation Front over the brutal Anastasio Somoza dictatorship in 1979 and over U.S. imperialist power that backed him and again in their victory over the U.S. created Contra counter-revolutionary force in 2006 that drove the FSLN from power in 1990 is a triumph of people's self-determination against the greatest imperialist power in the world. But also it's a triumph of people's unity in struggle, even in a long, protect, protracted, armed struggle. Nicaragua continues to be one of the models for how we defeat imperialism and how we can develop a successful and thriving society outside of capitalism and imperialist domination, showing us how to carry out decolonization and independence while rebuilding national unity around social projects. The Nicaraguan government has designed a development strategy based on social programs such as Zero Hunger, Planteco, Zero Usura, Merienda Escolar, Bono Productivo, and Casas para el Pueblo, which all together aim to reduce and eradicate poverty, illiteracy, and inequality, and none of it can be done without regaining national unity. As we commemorate the Nicaraguan victory and continued struggle against imperialism, and we struggle with our Puerto Rican brothers and sisters as they continue to fight for their independence from the same forces, we should be reminded that the defeat of our shared enemy, U.S. imperialism and capitalism, cannot be achieved without unity among all of us who are fighting against it. Follow Luke Nation on Patreon.com slash Luke Nation for lots of great content. 
And those are today's talking points. And you are listening to it by any means necessary on radio, Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movement shaping the world around us. By any means necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on. As they say, we're now happy to be joined by Phil Willado, editor of the Virginia Defender newspaper and co-founder of the Virginia Defenders for Freedom, Justice and Equality. Phil, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Sean. Hi, Jackie. How are you all doing? Doing well, Phil. Doing well. Glad we could have you on. And, you know, Phil, one of the most persistent and really one of the core narratives uh, from the U.S. and the West as it concerns the war in Ukraine is that it was a quote unquote uh, unprovoked war and is only taking place as a result of the uh, pure uh, brutality and bloodthirstiness of the Russian government in general and of Vladimir Putin in particular. Now, you recently published a piece on Richard entitled uh, The Provocations Behind the, quote, Unprovoked War, that give a real historical and political context to the the war in Ukraine that is basically verboten in the U.S. right now. So I was hoping you could break down that history and that context and why it's important that we understand uh, the war in Ukraine from that vantage point. Um, Okay. Let's go. Um, But first, I do want to um, publicly thank the Richmond Times-Dispatch newspaper for publishing the opinion piece. Um, Of course, they didn't have to do that, and they ran it in the Sunday edition as the top uh, story. Um, And it, uh, you know, it goes against the the official narrative um, and the editorial position of the Times-Dispatch. So um, I do appreciate them doing it. Um, we did include 18 footnotes to document every uh, factual statement that was made, and they were all mainstream media or from the NATO uh, website. So I think that helped. But um, yeah, it's unusual to get um, you know a different view uh, published. Um, and uh, there's been, I think, 20 comments on the uh, the piece so far on the newspaper's website. Um, uh, among which are uh, several people accusing me of uh, being published in um, Russian media. So I'm very happy to be on Sputnik today um, and validate that uh, accusation, because we do like things to be factual uh, here in Richmond. So um, back to the um, uh, provocations. Um, there are two, actually three main uh, events or processes that have to be understood uh, in order to, uh, to really uh, be able to uh, understand how we got to the present situation with the war in Ukraine. Um, and the first is that the war did not begin uh, on February 24th of this year. Uh, it began back in the spring of 2014. Um, after the right-wing coup that brought an anti-Russian, pro-U.S. government to power um, that immediately started to take steps uh, to isolate and uh, politically neutralize the uh, uh, ethnic Russian minority of the country. Uh, Ukraine is a uh, multinational country uh, where ethnic Russians make up Seventeen uh, percent of the population, and some thirty percent of the population speaks uh, Russian as a uh, 
uh, as their first language. And one of the first things the new government did was to ban the use of Russian language in official business um, and also several other uh, languages as well. Um, and uh, the purpose was to promote uh, Ukrainian ultranationalism. Not just nationalism in terms of, of being proud to be a country, but ultranationalism in terms of uh, the particular ethnic Ukrainian uh, section of the population. Um, and in particular, those sections of that population that identify with the fascist organizations, Ukrainian fascist organizations that uh, allied with the Nazi occupiers during World War II. Um, this is, that's an extremely important thing to understand because um, it helps to uh, it helps to explain why the predominantly Russian uh, population of Crimea uh, voted uh, in a referendum to separate from Ukraine and rejoin Russia, uh, which it had been part of um, until 1954, when it was administratively transferred from uh, the Republic, the Soviet Republic of Russia, to the Soviet Republic of Ukraine, it had been historically part of Russia for 300 years. Uh, it explains why the people of Donetsk and Luhansk in uh, Donbas, uh, again predominantly ethnically Russian, uh, declared independent republics and separated themselves from the Ukrainian uh, national state. It explains why there was fighting in Mariupol, the Black Sea uh, port city, um, that also had a strong separatist movement. Um, and it explains why people were protesting in Odessa and then were attacked by a fascist-led mob that led to the Odessa massacre of May 2, 2014. Um, after the, the, uh, the people of Donetsk and Luhansk uh, in the Donbas region, declared their independence. The Ukrainian uh, uh, government uh, initiated an attack to try to reclaim that that uh, that area, um, and they relied particularly on uh, neo-Nazi paramilitary organizations for much of the fighting, um, and particularly the Azov Battalion um, that played the major role in uh, in retaking Mariupol from the separatists. Um, and so in addition to an ethnic uh, conflict, uh, what's much deeper and more important is the political conflict between forces that identified with the Nazi occupiers and the forces that identified with the Red Army that, that along with the Ukrainian partisans, defeated the Nazi occupiers. And that war in the Donbass has continued unabated since 2014. So, in a real sense, the present war is a continuation of that war um, that was initiated by the Ukrainian government, not by uh, the Russian Federation. Um, the second point is the U.S. support for that uh, uh, coup in 2014. Uh, Senator John McCain uh, uh, you know, a very powerful U.S. senator uh, made several trips to the capital uh, of Kiev and uh, made speeches to the protesters who had gathered in Euromaidan's uh, square uh, to protest against the uh, 
the president who uh, wanted closer economic relations with Russia, when the parliament uh, and uh, many of the Ukrainians wanted closer economic relations with uh, with uh, the European Union, um, that uh, those protests uh, morphed into a violent insurrection led by neo-Nazi organizations such as Right Sector um, and uh, and others. Um, and McCain was over there uh, cheering on the protesters. Um, the uh, secretary of uh, the undersecretary of state for European and Eurasian affairs, Eastern European and Eurasian affairs, Victoria Newland, uh, was also over encouraging the protesters and was photographed by Associated Press uh, handing out pastries to the protesters. But more importantly, um, she later bragged uh, openly that uh, the U.S. had spent some $5 billion in promoting, quote, democracy in Ukraine, which, of course, means uh, supporting uh, civic organizations dedicated to undermining the Ukrainian government. Uh, She also um, was... There was a a telephone conversation that she had with the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine that was leaked, um, and I don't think it's still known today how that happened, but nobody's denying that it was valid, um, in which the two of them are discussing who should be the next president of of Ukraine. Um, and uh, and they were uh, pouring money in, they were supporting the, the coup uh, politically, and they were obviously um, had their own view of how it should turn out, and that is, in fact, how it turned out. Uh, so... The fact that the United States supported this this right-wing coup, um, which then put uh, a government in place that was totally pro-U.S., totally anti-Russian, uh, and and publicly wanted to uh, to affiliate with the uh, North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, um, was obviously uh, something that was seen as very threatening by Russia. And then the third factor, along with the ongoing war in Donbass and the U.S. support for the 2014 coup, the third factor was the steady uh, expansion of NATO from a Western U.S.-Canadian military alliance to a European-wide alliance led by the U.S., um, uh, which had expanded right up to the very borders of Russia. Um, Back in... Uh, 1991, when the Soviet Union was collapsing, uh, the the West wanted uh, to see the reunification of Germany from capitalist uh, West Germany uh, to and socialist East Germany, and wanted it to be allied with the West. And uh, uh, the Soviet Union, uh, which had uh, lost 20 million people in World War II as a result of the German invasion of their country, was not real happy with that uh, proposal. So then Secretary of State James Baker made a proposal to then the Soviet leader, Mikhail Gorbachev, and said, look, if you agree to the reunification of Russia, uh, we will promise that NATO will not expand one inch eastward. You'll, you'll remain a, a Western European-U.S. alliance. Gorbachev agreed. And since then, every one of the 14 new members of NATO have been to the east, right up to the border of Russia. So today, uh, there are 
uh, seven countries uh, that border uh, the western flank of Russia. Um, and uh, three of them are already members of NATO. Three of them have uh, uh, applied to join uh, NATO. And the only uh, one that would remain as an ally of Russia is Belarus. So if, if, you're, if you can imagine yourself in Russia seeing this steady expansion of NATO right up to your very borders, and not just a formal uh, expansion, but joint military exercises taking place uh, uh, right up to your borders um, and uh, in the, uh, on the land, sea, and air of Ukraine, including uh, military uh, naval exercises in the Black Sea. Um, and you know the U.S. was uh, at least supportive, if not behind, the 2014 coup. Uh, and you know that um, they are giving uh, military support uh, for the attempt by the Ukrainian uh, military to uh, take back the Donbass region. Um, at some point, you're going to come to the conclusion that you're facing an existential threat. Um, and whether or not people agree with the decision by the Russian Federation to move into uh, and attack Ukraine. Uh, it is completely ridiculous to, to claim that it was an unprovoked action. Uh, there was a long-term provocation. Um, and uh, now the situation is clearly uh, a proxy war between the U.S. and Russia, and that the U.S. is supplying um uh, the latest count was some $5. billion in military aid uh, and, and many other types of aid as well to the Ukrainian uh, government and military um, and is providing military intelligence. And, you know, if the U.S. has this much of a stake in the outcome, that they're also they have to be involved in the planning and, and the, uh, the, the, uh, the, you know, developing the strategies and tactics that are being carried out in the war. So the U.S. is able to fight a war with Russia, a country that it views as a political, military, and economic rival that it wants to bring to heel. It's able to fight a war with Russia, uh, but without su suffering any casualties itself. And by pouring all this military uh, ordnance and weapons and, and ammunition uh, into the conflict, it's prolonging the conflict, which is in its interest. At this point, the U.S. has no interest whatsoever in seeing this war come to an end. Uh, they, they, they're hoping that it will deplete Russia uh, uh, financially and militarily. Uh, and with the addition of the sanctions, uh, the onerous sanctions will eventually convince the Russian people to uh, rise up against their own government and affect uh, another in the so-called color revolutions. Um, fortunately, that doesn't seem to be happening. Um, the latest polls that uh, by organizations that are considered credible by Western media show that uh, the vast majority of Russians support uh, the, their government's position on the war, um, and it doesn't seem to be uh, moving in the direction of, of these, you know, so-called color revolutions. So that's where we're at today. Um, I know there's a great deal of confusion in the peace movement about this issue. Um, they all will condemn NATO. They all will point to the expansion. But too many of them start off their list of demands with uh, Russia out of Ukraine, which puts the onus uh, on Russia as if it's uh, Russia is the the, uh, the side that's responsible for the war. And I think that's 
that does a real disservice to the facts and, and helps to further disorient the public here uh, in the U.S. and in Europe. Yeah, you, you know, Phil, that I think what you raise in this piece, which is great, uh, particularly all of the links to, to everything to back up all of the claims, is really important in making clear um, the history of that led up to this conflict happening. And, but in particular, I'm glad that you raised the way the coup in 2014 changed Ukraine in fundamental ways. So I think that when we talk about the coup, we kind of got gloss over it. We talk about, you know, Victoria Nuland and, and John McCain going to Ukraine. And, and But we don't talk about the way that coup made lasting change in Ukraine that targeted the people that folks in the media and some folks on the left are now saying Vladimir Putin is like he's literally heading the, the, the you know, the military action himself that Vladimir Putin is killing in Ukraine. So in the last few minutes, how has this uh, uh, coup, how did the coup in Ukraine fundamentally change Ukraine, um, targeting the ethnic Russian people in the contested regions of the Donbass since 2014 that led up to this? When I was in Odessa in 2016 for the second anniversary uh, memorial for the Odessa massacre, it was clear that there was real fear. There was fear that uh, if people came out on the streets to commemorate uh, uh, certain events like, you know, the victory over the Nazis in World War II um, or the massacre itself, there was fear that neo-Nazi organizations would come out and physically attack them and that the police um, would, would stand by and allow that to happen. Um, that's what changed. Um, and since then, it's not possible. Uh, not only is it not possible to go out and protest against the government for any range of, of issues, but um, it, it's uh, there is a wave of repression going on in the country where uh, at the last count, more than 15,000 people were arrested, many of them simply for posting um, uh, things on social media uh, uh, critical of the government. So the people have been arrested, people who I met in Odessa are in prison, um, uh, you know, are charged with, you know, all kinds of outlandish uh, crimes that, 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 that I know just from knowing these people couldn't be true. Um but that's that's been the fundamental difference. It changed the balance of power, and it is not possible to be an open progressive in uh, in Ukraine today. Um, the image that we're being given of a of a peace loving democratic uh, society struggling to create a, a you know a, a new country and that's that's just propaganda. It's not the reality on the ground. Not all Ukrainians are fascists. I'm not saying that at all, but. Uh, it, it would be as if uh, January 6th were successful and the Proud Boys and, and the Oath Keepers and, and the League of the South and all of those were free to roam the country and intimidate anybody who came out to, to demonstrate a protest on any issue at all. That's the situation in Ukraine today. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Phil, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary.
Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about mainstream media outlets comparing Russian President Vladimir Putin to Adolf Hitler. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Joshua Cho, a freelance writer and media critic. Joshua, thanks so much for joining us. Glad to be back. Absolutely. We're glad to have you back, Joshua. And, you know, uh, since the Russian invasion of Ukraine back on February 24th of this year, there's been uh, a pretty incessant uh, demonization campaign, uh, I think, both against uh, Vladimir Putin as an individual and of Russia as a whole. And one uh, narrative that has emerged out of this period is we see a, a different mainstream media media platforms, including some that are uh, quite trusted, to literally compare Vladimir Putin to Adolf Hitler, an actual genocidal fascist dictator. And I mean, personally, I think that whatever one thinks of Putin or the invasion itself, to compare him to uh, uh, Hitler, I think it not only trivializes uh, the Holocaust, but also I think evidence is a fundamental misunderstanding of the context in history of uh, uh, the Russian invasion and how it's playing out at this point as the war in Ukraine. And you recently published a piece about this, Joshua, for Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, or FAIR, entitled Calling Putin Hitler to smear diplomacy as appeasement. And I was hoping you could break down how these comparisons have looked uh, in the mainstream media. And beyond that, what is the function of that narrative? Gotcha. So um, pre-Russian invasion, um, the main, the corporate media often, uh, I mean, I'm not sure if Hitler comparisons were never made before the invasion, but before that, they often called him uh, mentally ill or just an evil person in general, even if they're not exact, even if he's not exactly Hitler. But after the invasion, um, people just started referring to him as Hitler and that he should never be appeased for anything. Um, and they often make these exaggerated and frivolous accusations of um, Putin being Hitler reincarnate. Um, to make it look like that any negotiations with him would be either immoral or futile. And the point of this is to prevent any sort of um, activist calling for diplomacy or prevent any diplomacy from happening and say that let's make it seem as if violence is the only answer where um, both Ukraine and Russia keep fighting and where, the, where America and NATO countries keep sending um, weapons to Ukraine. Yeah. And, you know, the way these uh, corporate media pundits, specifically people like Ali Veshi uh, uh, and Rachel Maddow on MSNBC are, you know, trying to claim that Putin is actually worse than Hitler, making the argument that Putin is killing his own people, where they say that Hitler didn't kill ethnic Germans, are, you know, of course, historically inaccurate in regard to Hitler killing ethnic Germans. Germans, of course, he did. Um, if they did not fit, you know, his idea of what the master race uh, should be. But then there are also, the, you know, the fact that they are covering up the 
actual uh, uh, civil war that Ukrainian, uh, the Ukrainian military, the Ukrainian army carried out against the very same people that they claim that Putin is is killing, especially in the eastern region in Donbass, ethnic Russians. So, I mean, how how are they using, uh, you know, this claim that that Hitler is worse uh, or that Putin rather is worse than Hitler um, and taking that uh, and, and making it a kind of ranking that they're peddling uh, to people on their uh, uh, multimedia platforms now? Um, well, this trope of comparing Putin as either being the same as Hitler or actually even worse than Hitler. Um, it's not exactly something that happened just after the invasion um, uh, in 2022. Um, I believe a British journalist named Louis Alde did a fantastic article like looking at all the previous other comparisons of foreign leaders that uh, happened to be opposed to Western imperialism or not exactly aligned, fully aligned with the United States, like they called uh, Egypt's um, Abdel Nasser, um, worse than Hitler, they called uh, Fidel Castro, Cuba's Fidel Castro, <laughs> as the same as Hitler. Uh, they called uh, Saddam Hussein uh, as worse than Hitler. Not, and by they, I mean I'm referring to politi- American politicians and American journalists. And, um, I mean, if one were to take all these accusations at face value, you'd be kind of uh, depending on how you look at it, it's either funny or it's either extremely depressing that. There's so many Hitler figures since World War II, but these accusations make it seem as if, like, not only is violence, well, if you believe your opponent is Hitler, then you kind of make it seem as if there's no such thing as negotiations or meaningful negotiations. But if you call them worse than Hitler, then you have to say, then it kind of implies, like, that there's an emergency and that they have to choose violence now and for the foreseeable future. And that uh, is just really not conducive to diplomacy. And you make people who advocate diplomacy with Russia or advocate diplomacy between Russia and Ukraine um, as immoral monsters who are basically genocide apologists that smear everyone who calls for diplomacy as being some kind of a Putin supporter, which is, uh, I mean, whatever you think of Putin, I'm not exactly the biggest fan, but to, to, to call him Hitler is just not accurate. Yeah, and you're right to say that, uh, you know, Putin is certainly not the first leader to have these kinds of comparison. I don't think it's a coincidence that these Hitler comparisons always come, as you note, Joshua, um, to the leaders of governments that the U.S. deems as enemies. And in this case, in terms of of Vladimir Putin, uh, there could be some very dangerous implications for that narrative, because, as you say, it goes beyond simply demonizing Vladimir Putin the individual, it's really about uh, stigmatizing the idea of diplomacy with him as, you know, being an apologist for genocide and things like that. But when one considers the the, the sort of proxy war uh, dynamic that uh, uh, the, the Ukraine war has and something that could very well result in open conflict between the U.S. and Russia, two nuclear powers, well, then I think that uh, uh, these media platforms really hold uh, responsibility for being uh, bellicose and having this uh, saber rattling kind of uh, a way of operating. And beyond that, it seems to me sort of a danger for real journalism in and of itself for these platforms to basically, at least in my estimation, acting as uh, uh, bullhorns for uh, uh, the U.S. state. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's a very good um, comparison. 
Yeah, and another thing that you note in your piece that I think is also important on a similar note is this idea that diplomacy with uh, Russia is, quote unquote, appeasement. In other words, it's it's seen as, uh, uh, you know, kowtowing to, you know, the, the supposedly dictatorial uh, Russian government. You know what I mean? And so particularly with the U.S. that is sort of, you know, proclaiming to be on uh, uh, the right side of this issue and, uh, you know, uh, claiming to want peace and all these sorts of things. I mean, if diplomacy is a well, then war is your only real option, right? And I feel like we've been seeing sort of calls for that uh, openly in a number of ways uh, since the invasion. But in truth, like I'm saying, I just feel like there's a real danger to this that uh, uh, the American people uh, don't seem to be uh, aware of generally. Yeah, I, I do think that um, one thing I didn't note in my article, but now that I'm realizing while talking to you is that um, America already fought a world war to stop an actual Hitler and if you call Vladimir Putin Hitler, that kind of implicitly justifies, at least implicitly justifies a world, an actual World War Three to stop Putin. And they're like, it kind of even justifies a world war, not just arming Ukraine and stopping diplomacy, if you think about it carefully. But um, one another thing about appeasement is that uh, appeasement, the figure most often referenced when making appeasement references in the Western media is uh, Neville Chamberlain. But what people don't get is that uh, Neville Chamberlain was a British conservative right-wing politician, not a, not a liberal or a progressive or socialist left-wing peacenik. Um, he was like Neville Chamberlain was no peace activist, and a lot of Western leaders uh, were actually quite fond of Adolf Hitler at the time. So it wasn't because that uh, they... Out of a out of like a principled desire for peace, that they appeased Hitler. It was because the conservative politicians in Europe and America were not exactly against Hitler, and they wanted uh, Hitler and the Soviet Union to go into open conflict with each other, to weaken each other, so that uh, America could swoop in and uh, take on the weakened victor at that time. But um, what what people don't often realize is that the real history of appeasement. Um, it's not that popular narrative isn't exactly correct because uh, before um, the appeasement narrative happened, happened, um, or well, before the supposed incident of appeasement happened in Munich, or a little bit afterwards, but before World War Three, before World War Two, I mean, what is it? Stalin, the leader of the Soviet Union at the time, Joseph Stalin, actually sent um, letters to uh, Britain and France. Suggesting that they that he send uh, around like a million Soviet forces near German borders before to preemptively stop World War II from happening in the first place. Not that Saul knew about World War II would happen at the time, but in 1939, but Britain and France ignored the offer. Um, it's arguably that that uh, actually led the way to World War II, not Neville Chamberlain's famous. Uh, yeah, and another one of the narratives that we are getting from uh, Western media in regard to uh, comparing Putin to Hitler in particular is that they claim that the reason Putin invaded uh, Ukraine, regardless of what anyone thinks about the actual military action, was that Putin wants to recreate the Soviet Union, reestablish the Russian Empire. Is any of that true, or is this another uh, uh, instance 
where U.S. Western media is taking uh, uh, comments out of context and just blatantly not telling the truth? Well, to be honest, I think that's kind of an open question, um, despite Putin's repeated denials of it, because um, let's say, like before 2022, people were already accusing Putin of wanting to recreate the Soviet Union and the Russian Empire. That's why they claimed that appeasing him would be bad before 2022. Um, but despite this, Putin has repeatedly denied that he does want to do that. And I'm not sure if he was lying at the time. But, uh, before the war has continued to this extent, um, now that Russia seems to be being a lot more successful than the Western media was telling us they were initially, um, I don't, maybe Putin did not exactly enter the war with the goal of recreating the Russian Empire or the Soviet Union. I still don't think that's true exactly, but I do think that uh, Russia, it's possible that Russia would expand its war aims now because they've already invested so much money and blood into this campaign that it would, it would, be, it would look very politically unwise for Putin to do, and to do something bare minimum to accomplish something the bare, like the bare minimum that he uh, claimed he was doing at the beginning of the conflict. Um, one thing I looked at when I looked at uh, Putin's speeches and Putin's articles um, before 2020 just supposedly justify the, camp- the invasion, they often claim that Putin thinks that Ukraine isn't a real country that should ever exist, that Russia is rightfully taking back its territory. I, looked, I actually looked at both of those main sources and found that that's not exactly true. So even they're misrepresenting the source material to justify their accusation that Putin wants to recreate the Soviet Union and the Russian Empire. That's true, at least. But at least uh, in, the, in the future, if negotiations don't happen soon, maybe Russia could expand its warring. So I don't really know what's going to happen in the future. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Joshua, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the politics and character of the current Republican Party. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Dave Lindorf, investigative journalist, editor of the online publication, This Can't Be Happening.net, and 2019 winner of an Izzy Award for Outstanding Independent Media. Dave, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And Dave, uh, you recently published a piece on your website, this can't be happening dot net titled Let's Rebrand the Misnamed GOP as the BLP, saying that uh, the Republicans or the Grand Old Party should actually be renamed as the Bad Losers Party. And I was hoping you could uh, break down just uh, what you meant by this and how you see uh, the Republicans factoring into the uh, political landscape of the U.S. at this point. Yeah, well, I mean, clearly there is a, uh, a um, you know, I, I think at this point it's easy to say a fascist uh, tendency within the Republican Party. Uh, there, you know, white 
supremacist uh, Christian fascism, and uh, and it's been led, you know, by Trump and and by a lot of people behind him that have orchestrated this this development over the years. Uh, so I was looking at the fact what 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 struck me was that in the last couple of primaries. Uh, and we're in the primary season where virtually every Tuesday there are primaries in some state or other. Um, you've got a lot of red states that where the entire machinery of elections is in the hands of Republicans. And you've had a battle within the Republican Party, most notably in Wyoming uh, with Cheney, where you have uh, anti-Trumpers running against Trumpers, right? And uh, sometimes you have two Trumpers running against each other, like we had with our um, race for governor here in Pennsylvania and on the Republican side. And, and these guys are both Trumpers. And it's a question of saying, you know, who's the real Trumper, you know, and, the, and one of them, uh, Dr. Oz, the quack on TV, uh, had the endorsement from Trump. But, you know, the other guy uh, who lost also had, was calling himself a Trumper and had backed Trump uh, on his election, bogus election claims. So what they did was in all of these different primaries, there were articles I, I uh, linked to one uh, immediately after someone loses in these primaries, they immediately claim the loser that uh, that it was a fraud and the, it was election fraud. Now, it's one thing to say it's an election fraud if you have election machinery that is in the hands of the other party, you know, like, say, Fulton County in Georgia. Um, it still doesn't hold up. Uh, you know, when they've examined these things in court, often with Republican judges. But when it's the election apparatus that's in Republican hands and the Republicans call it a fraud when they lose, you know, you have to start saying, guys, come on, what do you take us for? You know, <laughs> um, it, it's it's the bad loser syndrome. You know, you just the the, the Republican go-to answer in elections is to call the elections a fraud even before their the votes are counted. And that's the that has to do with the fact that Republicans are a declining demographic. They're basically older white males and they're going downhill as a percentage of the US population. So so it's a strategy of of denigrating uh, the integrity of elections and I just thought okay why don't we call this what it is, a bad loser party, because Americans don't like bad losers. Americans like winners, and they don't like losers, and they really don't like bad losers. So if this is a bad loser party, let's call it that. And and it's interesting that you say that, you know, Americans don't like losers, because if, I feel like that's something that Donald Trump has actually said, that, you know, oh, yeah. it, at least he he doesn't like losers. Yeah. And, and, and that's kind of the sentiment that uh, you get from Trump and his supporters, that this idea that, you know, um, you know, they don't like to be around a bunch of losers. But but the way these people respond when they actually do lose an election is pretty indicative of the fact that, I mean, they are the actual losers here. So but but how do we combat 
the effectiveness of this kind of, I look at it as almost kind of like a type of psychological warfare that this small group of people uh, with a lot of power and money who have been able to influence so much in American politics, uh, and I don't think it's happened just under Trump, how do we combat this? Well, this was actually my my thought is that you combat it with humor. You know, if if you can get people to laugh when Republicans say that that the vote was rigged, uh, it sort of destroys their argument. And and I think, you know, it the evidence is so great that all of this claim about election fraud is bogus. I mean, lawsuit after lawsuit has been overturned most of the time by Republican judges have said that there's nothing there. There's no there there. So so we need to start laughing at it and and instead of giving it any credibility at all. Yeah. And I think uh, the reality is, is that, you know, this this uh, narrative or what's been called of the big lie about the stolen election still definitely permeates um, uh, uh, the right wing sort of voter base here in the United States as we continue to see. Um, a, a Trumpist candidate make runs for office in different parts of the country. And I mean, not that long ago, um, uh, Dave, we had you on the show talking about what a real opposition party in the U.S. looks like. And I think one of the kind of uh, more worrisome aspects would, of what would look, would look like there isn't one. <laughs> right. <laughs> what it would look like. And uh, I think one of the sort of noteworthy dynamics of our current political moment in the U.S. is how I mean, the Republican Republicans seemingly have been framed as the uh, uh, oppositional force in U.S. politics, which, you know, is frightening for all the reasons that uh, we've laid out here a a moment ago. And so I think it also sort of evidences how important a truly uh, oppositional force is, uh, particularly from the left, a kind of independent element from uh, uh, mainstream politics to really address uh, all the issues happening with the uh, Republicans and this far right element in the U.S. in general, as we don't see any sort of real fight back uh, coming from elsewhere uh, uh, within that same political environment. Yeah, well, it's, you know, it's a tough issue because the, I, I don't know if you saw the uh, le- the article that followed this. I put a, um, I put a line at the end of the article suggesting that I was interested in what names people would come up with as alternative real names for the Democratic Party. And one of my colleagues who has sort of dropped out of the, you know, active involvement in this can't be happening just because he's aging out. Uh, He's like in his 80s now. And it's, you know, he's he's sort of getting frustrated with journalism because he feels like he's not having an impact. But he said that my article, you know, sparked him to write something. So he wrote an article about that the Democratic Party should be renamed the War Party, which I think is pretty good. I mean, his wasn't a humorous. Mine was mine was a humorous article. His was anything but humorous. But he laid out all the presidents since uh, Truman who have been war candidates. And um, it's a good piece. And and I think he's right that the Democrats should be called the war party because they always support wars, uh, you know, until eventually when the wars are being lost, some of them turn around and become anti-war, but, you know, only after a great deal of pressure. So uh, there isn't really an opposition party. And that, you know, leads to the question of what is the strategy 
for people on the left who recognize this. I mean, on the one hand, we really need a, a left party that's a, a real oppositional left party, but it's very different, difficult structurally to create one. And the Democratic Party is where good left ideas go to die. You know, that's been said by many people. Um, and so people who are leftists and get into the Democratic Party and try to take it over, they get subsumed and co-opted. And, uh, you know, so so what is a uh, an oppositional person to do? Well, I think a lot of people on the on the you know left and it's even hard left have a feeling that, you know, we need to build a left movement outside of electoral politics. But we also have to not make the mistake that, you know, the communists made uh, in the rise of Hitler of, you know, fighting against the election. Uh, we need to uh, vote just to keep the Republican fascists out of office, but not to be um, tricked into believing that the Democrats are the answer. And I, and I think that's like the the, the tension, right? That there, there is, uh, you know, a very active and, and vigorous debate in left circles about the utility of voting. And I think that when people come to the conclusion, or at least the an, an answer. Uh, that is, we need to vote. I think there's a lot that is left off from what we should do after we vote. This is always kind of the issue. So, you know, what would you tell people who come to that conclusion, which, you know, I think in, in a time of revolution, we should be using every tool in the toolbox to make sure that revolution happens or that we get closer to it. And voting is one of those tools. But what do we do after we vote that continues to push us, not just to being in a place where, oh, whew, we're relieved that we you know, don't have to deal with the fascist Republicans uh, that are directly in power, but that we're actually moving society toward uh, closer toward a revolution to get rid of both uh, ineffectual political parties for the people? Well, I, I think there's two issues here. One is that, um, you know, if people want to have uh, a real impact on governance in this country right now, the best thing to do is to be involved in primaries in the Democratic Party and to, uh, you know, move the, the entire party to the left by being really involved in primaries, because that's when you can in, in, impact who the candidates are. The Democratic Party keeps running uh, against progressives who try to get uh, the nomination to, you know, seats in Congress, seats in legislatures and things. And they put up these, you know, usually incumbents, they back the incumbents with money and they run against the, per, the genuinely progressive candidates on the left. Um, and so that has to be combated with an act electorate that goes to bat for these, uh, you know, really leftist candidates like that guy that got elected that just got the Democratic nominee nomination in, I think, Kentucky. I, might, I always confuse Kentucky and Tennessee, but one of those primaries was a candidate who wants who ran on a platform of abolishing the CIA. Well, that's pretty good. And, and, you know, the votes came out. That person was red baited and, you know, attacked, uh, but won the primary because people came out and voted. And they, wasn't, and they weren't scared off by the uh, establishment 
you know, arguments that this person was unelectable. So now you got a candidate who's running on the Democratic ticket for Congress who wants to abolish the CIA. That's pretty good. I probably won't win. It's a Republican state. Um, but, you know, that that issue will now be addressed in the campaign. That's the kind of thing people need to do. The other thing is that, you know, people need to be uh, actively involved during the entire you know, period between elections in movements for progressive change in, in, uh, on issues that are uh, the real issues, anti-war, you know, cutting the defense, the military war budget. I keep saying defense. It's not defense. It's war. Militarism. We need to cut that budget by probably 90 percent. Um, you know, we need to defend Social Security, not just defend it. We need to expand it and make it a genuine retirement system. We need state-run health care, not a uh, gradually privatized Medicare. Um, all of these things need people in the streets, and, and people need to recognize the importance of that. It isn't just elections. Elections are the smallest part of building a movement. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Dave, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. By any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Monday, July 25th, 2022. And, of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call, leave it by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you will, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's y'all, to reach out and touch us at by any means necessary here in Washington. Washington, D.C. You can do that at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at SputnikNews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in by any means necessary. You can also hear us on Sputnik.Mave. That's M-A-V-E dot digital. And you can listen on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time. And we're streaming for your viewing pleasure live right now on Rumble. Rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We 
most certainly do. We most certainly do when we're very happy to be joined for the hour today by Neville Freeman, coordinating committee member with the Black Alliance for Peace, organized with Pan-African Community Action and host of Voices with Vision on WPFW 89.3 FM right here in Washington, D.C. Nepa, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Sean, Jackie. Absolutely. And Nepa, I know that you were recently in Nicaragua as that country uh, marked 43 years since the uh, uh, socialist Sandinista revolution. And I was basically wondering if you could tell us, you know, what you were able to get up to while you were in Nicaragua, what you were able to see, who you were able to uh, uh, speak with and just how are the Nicaraguan people responding to uh, uh, this anniversary from your vantage point? Hmm. Well, we saw a lot. This is the the Black Lives for Peace as a whole, not just myself, but Black Lives for Peace fourth time, fourth visit, fourth visit since within a year. Um, I went for the first time. I was on the forty second anniversary, and then did some. I guess what we call election observing, election observance, uh, but they call them um, accompaniments, uh, accompaniment, election accompaniments, or company or something like that. Um, and they, they have a whole explanation of why that's, you know, it's distinct from, you know, more paternalistic, I got to look out, <laughs> watch your elections kind of thing. But anyway, then also in January, we were invited back to, um, for the, still the inauguration after the sentence was won again. And then again, invited to come for this 43rd anniversary. We spoke to a lot of people. Um, we saw a lot of things. Actually, this time we were able to see something I hadn't seen before where, where they're building a number of housing. They have a housing project there for working class people. It's really remarkable constructing these housing units that are available for people, working class uh, Nicaraguans, for like a, a, one, their mortgage so they can actually buy them. But they're like a $10,000 house for over. <laughs> oh my, I can't remember. Um, how many years it is, but the 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 contract for them to have a mortgage is forty dollars a month, equivalent of forty dollars a month, and that's um, yeah. And then and so those the units were really nice looking. I mean, they were small, but they were nice looking. And of course, when you don't have anything, and this is just to correct the the housing problem of people being you know displaced, especially by under the neoliberal government that was in power for the sixteen years up until two thousand six. But there was that. Uh, we spoke to people in the finance, the the finance ministry of finance. They were talking about how they're navigating and the kind of things they're doing around the economy. Trying, it's very uh, centered on the interest of the working class and the people, rather in general. Uh, same thing. We also spoke with I forget the ministry of this. This was um, it was like uh, around environmental stuff. I guess environmental climate change and that kind of stuff, and they talked about what they're doing around that. Um, and I might be forgetting some, but we also, um, I think that might be, oh, you know, we spoke to the uh, a Minister of Foreign Affairs afterwards where they, you know, just received us and, and we talked about a whole number of things. He just spanned the, the gamut on that one. But the Black uh, Alliance for Peace delegation also went to Bluefields again. We've been going to Bluefields, the Caribbean coast of Nicaragua, every time we go. 
and we made that make with the number of our contacts already there. Um, and now we had a few different, the people that were there uh, that went with us were different. So <clears throat> some of the things that we were hearing was for their benefit, for the benefit in terms of even the history of the Caribbean coast and the autonomous regions of the call and the whole a project of autonomy and how it's uh, inextricably bound with the national interest and the government interest and, and how what autonomy really means, what real uh, also diversity in what is they called unity in diversity, and so this, uh, and then we also participated obviously in the um, in Managua and the the, the uh, celebrations of the 43rd anniversary that was in the, the, the plaza, and that was very interesting. That had a very special guests who also received the award. He was, the, the, we we're talking about the Prime Minister of St. Vincent and the Grenadines, Ralph Gonzalez. And, that's how I pronounce it. He's, you know, and, and, um, and he was given an award. He also spoke and addressed everyone. And, and Daniel Ortega, first, um, Rosario Mario is the Vice President um, and also wife of, of Daniel Ortega. And that they all three of them spoke. Daniel Tega, uh and and uh, yeah, everyone spoke, and it was very interesting. Um, I thought that was one of the one of the significant things about the president, the uh, visit of the Prime Minister of Saint Vincent and the Grenadines, is that uh, they talked about, and it was talked about actually on the Caribbean coast. They felt that very significant. He also came to the Caribbean coast on, on there. And one of the significant things is that the Garifuna people are one of the um, ethnic, uh, 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 ethnically ethnic recognized, one of the ethnicities, one of the people, ethnic peoples of the Caribbean coast, Afro-descendant peoples. And that, but their, their origin, which I didn't know until this time, is in St. Vincent and the Grenadines. So the prime minister spoke about that. And on the Caribbean coast, everyone we talked about mentioned the significance of his visit and him coming also to the Caribbean coast. Um, and it, and seen as a kind of reflection of, uh, the, the Pan-African ethos, so to speak. That's what I'm referring to. They didn't say that, that uh, but anything, anytime we're talking about African descendant people and them making, you know, forging, unit, you know, ties, political, cultural, and, uh, and economic ties with each other. That's Pan-Africanism. You know? And so that, that spoke to that Pan-African ethos, very significant for them, so it was significant for us. Um, and then, uh, but yeah, and so that was some of the, what, did you, what else did you ask me? Um, well, what, well, some of the things that I thought of also, was the, um, the indigenous, the, in terms of the lessons, and I was on this webinar yesterday, that was talking of like a report back from the from the broader delegation. It was not just Black Lives for Peace. And then one of the things that I thought was, that I believe is significant is the the autonomy from the autonomy that is practiced in Nicaragua in terms of it, what it teaches us and what lessons it has for people outside of Nicaragua is this question of what real genuine diversity and multiculturalism is and what it means as opposed to you know here. In, in the U.S. and other places, ethnocentricity uses it, you know, and reduces it to mean, you know, to something that's really just tokenism. 
and the preservation of the settler, really the settler colonial project. In other words, everything has to fit inside that. And even as there's even a cultural nationalism of it that defers really to, you know, Eurocentricity, but it's claiming to be, you know, diverse by giving some tacit acknowledgement to other other peoples inside of it. But as long as you're, you know, and and does not deal with the the economic, one, the cultural, economic, and political uh, circumstances and conditions of the people, which are usually, uh, which are always oppressive in certain colonial conditions. In Nicaragua, they have an autonomy that, that they recognize that, that uh, was already existed before, obviously, the, the, the integrity of the region and the multiculturalism that they created and the diversity that they worked through predates the, the Sandinista revolution. So it was just a matter of the Sandinista's uh, revolution and part as a party coming to power, recognizing that and figuring out, working with the people on the Atlantic coast to, to define under their, you know, a, a basically what we would call on Black Lives for Peace, a people-centered uh, definition of what autonomy means. And that was what they were asked. How do we define autonomy? Is it the success? And they talked about the struggle of it. It was a struggle because the people, um, because some people had this, had had an aversion to the notion of autonomy um, as being part of Nicaragua. And they thought it meant succession and they thought it meant, they didn't know what it meant. It was threatening to people, you know, obviously that are used to something else and the pre- um, predominance of something else. And even under the, and so this this autonomous recognition, autonomy recognition, took hold in 80, 1987 with the Sandinistas. But in 1990, when the neoliberal, the period of neoliberalism, the first neoliberal government was Chamorro, uh, um, I can't think on the first name, uh, they reversed all that. They kind of like... Not all of it, but just reversed a lot of it and just balked at it. Like, oh, what is this autonomy, you know, kind of thing. And so they reversed it. So when the Sandinists came to power, then they began to work more for one, restoring what they had, uh, what was, you know, reversed. And they hadn't even really been able to get achieve much because you're talking about only three years. And then in, and then establishing more. So to, to give it more concrete expression or, or or fill it out more for people is that we're talking about six different ethnic groups in the on the Caribbean coast that are the indigenous people and African descended people. I can't remember all the names of them. It's like mestizo, uh, mosquito, um, uh, rama, I think, uh, garifuna, creole. Probably, and I know I'm forgetting, but that's that's some of the that were that have their own language, their own culture, their you know that kind of thing, cultural practices, and even uh, land and territories that they occupy that are that are uh, that under other circumstances. On the first, on the Spanish domination, and then the the neoliberal domination, or even before the the Samosa, the, the Samosa. Um, the government came to power, were just exploited and used, and the ethnicities were, you know, were marginalized and uh, reduced, denigrated. And so, under the, the autonomy, the children are able to learn and get education in their own languages. Uh, they're respected. They have representation in the parliament, in the national or federal government. They are allowed their own um, ability. They're not allowed. 
um, that they are, how can I put it? I guess it's recognized their own structure of governance in the region, so their own regional um, and, and localized structures of government um, and forms of governance that are that are uh, um, p- um, created around, suited around their interests and their particular uh, circumstances there in the region. Uh, and then also other things that were neglected before, infrastructural stuff like um, uh, water, water, um, what you call it when you sewage, you know, pur- purification and sanitation that wasn't there, electricity, uh, internet, uh, the universities. They now have three universities in the region that are specific to their and have their language and are, you know, have to recognize their own other, you know, cultural, you know, in terms of their how the education is. Um, there's just a number of things. Now they're actually talking about also in Bluefields is the only airport on, in the region, was the only airport. They're talking about now not only creating more, establishing more airports, but also making the one in Bluefields an international airport because normally when you need to get to, to the Caribbean coast, you have to fly into Monongo and then travel all the way to the Caribbean coast. This would uh, allow, permit, make it um create the ability for people to, to fly directly into Bluefields. And so there's a number of different things um, that are, uh, that they've been um, working on and that the Sandinistas and they, the, 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 uh, our people, I say our people, meaning the African descendants, but also you're talking about indigenous peoples too, um, are part of the Sandinista revolution. They're Sandinistas. They fought, uh, for the independence against Spain, they fought once Spain took over. They have it's a very comp- uh, not complicated history. It's an interesting history because on the Caribbean coast, it was first it was colonized by the British, and then you know remember we're talking about eighteen seventeen hundreds, eighteen hundreds. I don't I'm not good at the history, but it was you know it was explained. But then the British, under an agreement between Spain and Britain, as I think the Treaty of Versailles. Um, Took uh, surrendered the territory to Spain, and then the British colonies that were there, that also not wanting to do it, were given uh, a mandate by the British Crown to to vacate the colonies, and they didn't. They wanted to refuse to do it, but they were mandated. They uh, an agreement was. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, they they were told that if they didn't do it, then they would end up having to be under the jurisdiction of Spain. So that was how they got them to all to all to leave. And when they left, the, a lot of the Africans were left behind. And and that's how you get the English speaking and Creole speaking Africans and the Garapuna people there. They came later, uh, or maybe they came, but then that's how that population came there. And then after the Spanish took over, then they enforced Spanish on uh, the Spanish language. And then culture onto the people they were trying to enforce it, but of course that created a which is interesting unintended. Um, I don't know if you call it unintended consequences. So you have the, a lot of the people are our people are bilingual uh, there. They speak um, Spanish and they speak some other either they're another language, either Creole or English Creole, and then an indigenous language. So anyway, it's a very interesting history. I didn't want to go 
Yeah, but I definitely hear what you're saying, Nefa, uh, in terms of how things are playing out there. I mean, it's just wild about how, you know, we're talking about a revolutionary process that's been in play for uh, 43 years and really the entire time. Uh, has been under a constant attack by uh, the United States and, and these other powerful governments around the world. Uh, not really because they did anything wrong per se, but simply because uh, uh, they wanted to operate and govern themselves in a way uh, that didn't uh, include kowtowing to Washington or uh, uh, bowing and scraping to the uh, uh, imperialists. And if you look at the history of Nicaragua, then you see that the U.S. and some of these other powers have been interfering in that country for really quite some time, even before the uh, revolution in 1979. We want to talk more about that on the other side of our first break of the hour here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Watch DDC. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines now open 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lupmont continue to be joined by Nefa Freeman. And while we're talking about these international uh, uh, issues, Nefa, and connecting them to politics here in the United States, I mean, uh, Ilan Omar uh, uh, was recently at an event. Um, I believe it was earlier this month. She was at uh, a concert that featured popular Somali singer Soldan Sirar in Minneapolis and was actually met with boos. And it seems that everyone on stage was um, surprised that this booing was happening. Now, the right wing in its media has uh, uh, framed this as a rejection of Omar's quote unquote woke politics, just because that's the the boogeyman that they're always uh, perpetrating upon their viewers and their readers. Uh, but in truth, I think it's uh, quite a bit deeper than that in terms of how uh, Omar, of course, herself, uh, Somali-American, and her orientation towards the the Horn of Africa. So I was hoping you could sort of get into that, Nefa. And what do you think this response to Omar evidences about uh, the feeling about her uh, in that community? Man, uh, yeah. so this is, this is really interesting. Wow. Um, that that was so, so the article was interesting written by this well, it talks about the Ilhan Ilhan Omar there's an article written by by Ann Garrison and she talks about how she was booed at a concert the concert was by Somali singer uh Soldan Sierra in Minneapolis there's a very large um Somali speak uh, Somali I'm sorry Somali uh, population in Minneapolis where it's where she's the, that's her district. And so a lot of times, I guess, it's interesting because we've talked about this before, I think even on your show, not uh, hers per se, but mostly talking about how uh, people, people that go the, uh, off the way of going into the, into the career politicians and going the way of being the Democratic Party are having to, they have to be beholden to Especially the foreign policy dictates of the U.S. And it's like political suicide to go against it. <clears throat> Mentioning, and I used to mention how 
Yeah. And, uh, you know, as we sort of continue in speaking about it, I mean, I think it's a reminder that even amongst the uh, uh, the people we call progressives here in the U.S., uh, even though they may have some uh, good opinions or stances on domestic issues, uh, they often have, you know, the same sort of uh, uh, foreign policy orientation as the mainstream of the Democrat Party and of the Republicans as well. And so it's still basically an imperialist stance to take, which I think sort of shows the the, the baseline and the serious boundaries and uh, constraints, uh, uh, even for those who consider themselves progressive. But uh, how do you see that? Yeah, <clears throat> but yeah, it's, it's definitely that is you know they they you know it's it's just they have the they don't come in with any kind of revolutionary politics. What we would consider real uh, understanding the what anti imperialism looks like. What, what it looks like to be working in the interest, really in the interest of other peoples in other countries and not the so-called U.S. national interest. And just to run, just to campaign, you got to pay lift service to that stuff. you got to pay lift service to U.S. interest somewhere, at least, even if, of course, undefined, and pretend that it's synonymous, it is in, that it shares the same goals or, or, you know, as the interests of the people in somewhere. And prior to this, you know, I used to, kind of give Ilhan Omar the benefit of the doubt and be like, okay, well, she can't really, you know, I'm not even talking about her in general. We're really talking about the system and how she can't really even work for, do right by Somalia because of just the position and make sure not be able to do that. In this case, I mean, it shows that it's even worse than that. <laughs> that there's just a lot of, you know, working with even people like, uh, not People, yeah, people and then governments like Rwanda, uh, Paul Kagame and that government and, you know, uh, hosting and, and incurring favor with the, the wife of uh, Kagame um, in, was it last year? Last year, the, the she traveled to Rwanda as a guest of the president of the Rwanda uh, and they proceeded to vote uh, and she voted in the House and for resolutions to call for to call for the um, the freedom of the brother who was in the movie Hotel Rwanda, because right now, um, so backstory is the brother who was in the Paul Rusesabagina is his name, and so he he he's in the Hotel Rwanda movie, and then that's everyone talks about the Hotel Rwanda movie, and now he's in arrested the uh, Rwanda government kidnaps him from another country and arrests him because contrary to what the movie depicts, not really contrary, but what the movie leaves out is that Paul Rusesabagina has been critical of both the Rwandan government. Uh, and now, so they're seen as the RDF, I think is the RDF, the, the defense forces of Paul Kagame were seen as the heroes of stopping the genocide uh, in the nineties, but it's actually not quite as clear as that. And it was a, it was more of a people died on both sides. There was a lot of killing, and then they've been actually involved in destabilizing uh, in in Congo and all this type of stuff. And so he's spoken out against those things. And as a result of that, his, because of his stature and him doing so, they've kidnapped him and have charged him with terrorism and all kind of other stuff. The U.S. is not doing anything to get him out, and that. They've even had resolutions because of the high profile of Paul Russell's beginning, because of him being kind of a 
you know, star because of what happened. They've had resolutions in the House calling for his freedom as a political prisoner. Ilhan Omar has voted against the resolution. So she's one of the people voting against the resolution to free Paul Rosa Pegina. These are like decided. We're not talking about someone who abstained or anything like that. They're taking decided, you know, actions against what justice would be. Of course, this person is not, uh, you know, a terrorist or anything. And then even uh, Paul Kagame has been has been accused by the International Criminal Court of, of, for war crimes and genocide and whatnot. And, so, and he's not being brought to justice by that. The U.S. just turns a blind eye on that. There's things like uh, regarding Ethiopia and the, and the conflict there. Uh, Ilhan Omar has has uh, directed her criticisms and and uh, around supporting and that the misinformation for the TPLF the, the, as if there's some rebel group in Ethiopia and these are really just terrorists that used to have you know be in the government there. So she's taken a lot of and that's discretion of service taking a lot of positions that are contrary to African liberation that are contrary to anti-imperialism and so. And this is regarding Africa itself. And so there's a lot more there that, you know, at this point, I can't even continue to give her the benefit of the doubt. But I think what it makes clear is that not the, um, this whole, uh, what you call, you know, deference or what you call it, putting egg, putting our hopes in some squad or some group that will, that will, you know, make the more, the U.S. government, uh, better. And and we can do a bunch of little reforms and hope that they'll put them, you know, bring them, bring the, those these types of reforms and support these types of reforms that represent justice. That's just uh, that's folly to to hope for that, and that there needs to be much more examination and 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 scrutiny of the people that that are being held up to us by liberals as as uh, aggressives and as you know radicals and whatnot. Yeah, especially since, you know, there are questions about, you know, why really that like the the, the specific reasons why Ilan uh, uh, Omar was booed. You know, some people are like, oh, folks in her district are angry over her, um, you know, neglect in her district where violent crime is surging. And that might be true. But I really feel like what you laid out about the way she has supported uh, truly malign actors uh, in the Horn of Africa uh, with her meeting uh, Paul Kagame. Uh, you know, and 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 that kind of thing are really the issue, particularly when uh, Omar was in. in I guess she was supportive, or or she had a role in removing Somali President Mohammed. Abdullahi Muhammad um, and supporting another candidate who is affiliated with her clan. And this is important because Somalis considered um, uh, Abdullahi Muhammad to be, uh, as they say, a good, decent uh, and anti-imperialist fighter of corruption. So uh, Omar had a hand in removing him, but also on a wider scale. It's the fact that she voted for H.R. 3711 or I'm sorry, 7311, which is the recent uh, House bill countering malign Russian activities in Africa Act. And I think this is probably the thing that most people would understand the best in the way that 
uh, Ilan Omar as a member of the squad, as they have all done, because I think they all voted for this bill, have really supported the expansion of U.S. aggression and imperialism on the continent, in the continent of Africa. And Africans are not ignoring this at all, Netva. No, they're not. I mean, they, they're not ignoring that. And then, as we can see with the hiking stuff from, around Ukraine and uh, with uh, NATO and Russia, really, because that's how the world's seeing it. The world is clear that this is about NATO and they uh, and Russia, and they're not fooled by the proxy Ukraine and all that. And that people are at, against NATO. They're against U.S. imperialism, and they they realize that it's not doing bringing anything good to them, and that what countries like you know Russia and China present to them are at least some alternatives, or some some multipolarity, multi multipolar polarity in the world, whereas they have to otherwise be subjected to the gangsterism of these countries, to these uh, to the U.S. and Western Western countries, and that so the malign the countering malign Russian activities in Africa Act is just really it's basically an affront to the sovereignty and, and right of the, the sovereignty of African countries and we you know dictating who they can have international relations with. And that so they so it's really ridiculous that she would even that any of them would vote for that and not call it out for it is and be still be able to be uh deemed as some sort of progressive anti, you know, imperialist or you know, anti-U.S. intervention type of uh, people. I mean, um, and so there's that. I mean, the, the whole thing with Somalia and Somalia, the, the president that you named. It, I mean, it, that was this president was behind the. It was they supported the deal, the peace deal between uh, Ethiopia and Eritrea, and we're starting the brokered peace there that a lot of people were very happy about. Um, and so a lot of things that, the, you know, that uh, the people are for, that she doesn't seem to be, she just, you know, when it comes to foreign policy, she ain't doing nothing for the people that, that seems to be progressive and and allows the liberals who really are not too good on foreign policy themselves to lift up um, superficial, superficial um, political, political, uh, you know, uh, yeah, definitely. And speaking of uh, the Horn of Africa, it's being reported uh, recently that uh, Israeli Prime Minister Yair Lapid actually approved of the closure of the Israeli embassy in Eritrea uh, after the blocking of an ambassador. Uh, what, what's happening there? Yeah, so um, the, the, the Eritreans did not approve the ambassador, the uh, Somalia, I mean, the Israeli ambassador they were supposed to be assigned there. And after holding it up, it's held up the delay. It's delayed the operation of the embassy for so long. I, I don't really, it's hard to know why they were doing it. But in delaying it, it's, it's served, it's rendered the embassy uh, inoperative. And so they're holding up uh, the Israel, Israel. Israel is spending money and everything to keep the embassy open. And it's just since it's not since it's not operative, they decided, well, we might as well close it. Uh, this interesting relationship between Israel and Eritrea, some of this is, it reminds me of there have been um, stories or rumors that have been floating around for a long time now uh, that. Uh, and has caused some some hesitancy uh, about from uh, radical people around Eritrea, saying, "Well, Eritrea allows the 
uh, Israeli base, phantom bases, you know, military bases and, and observation you know, outposts in Eritrea. But it seems to not be true at all. Uh, and so there, you know, these things have been reported, false claims by, have been reported even by, by Middle Eastern type outlets, the Middle Eastern outlets. And then when Eritrea has put out information, this goes all the way back. We're talking about going back, when I say 10 years or maybe not exactly 10 years, but it's been quite some time. And when Eritrea had the demand, well, where is the source of this information? It's had to reject it. It's not true. So, um, and quite frankly, I have to be honest that I even have heard it and thought that it was true until I came across the, you know, someone showing me that this was not true. So uh, what Eritrea is saying that these um, these rumors are put out intentionally to sow division and discord, and that they're put out by people who have certain interests and it serves their agenda, um, dubious agendas at certain times. And I could see how it would be helpful because some of us would we go and we say, well, you know, Africa, Eritrea is the only country in Africa that doesn't have Africa, and that we, you know, it's seen as a, a give it some more anti-imperialist. Uh, credentials, so to speak, and regard and respect and respect for anti-imperialism. But then you have to take a step back and say, well, wait a minute, they got Israeli base there. Um, and so to, it weakens the, uh, the um, it weakens or creates divisions um, among anti-imperialist ranks when they believe certain things like this are true. So now, you know, it's, it's good for us to know this is not true. And I and I put this, this thing with the embassy in that same kind of light that who knows what Eritrea is saying that in terms of why they haven't uh, gone ahead and approved the person. But I could see with the pointed and antagonistic relationship between U.S. and Eritrea that, you know, and the and the relationship between the U.S. and Israel that they wouldn't, it just wouldn't be a, um, you know, something that they would just, you know, welcome so so readily. Yeah, and you know, as we're looking at, uh, you know, these issues uh, across the the continent, where you know people are clearly, uh, you know, not taking uh, lightly the the ongoing involvement of U.S. imperialism um, and, you know, the representatives of, U- of U.S. imperialism that we've been talking about that we're supposed to be, you know, so uh, enamored with. I mean, how do you think, you know, especially tied up with your visit to uh, Nicaragua and the way uh, the uh, Garifuna people uh, uh, respond to their government, you know, a socialist government that includes them in the process? Process. What does all of this mean for us in the U.S. as, you know, African descended people and indigenous people and Mexican descended people, Latin American descended people are still looking for some kind of uh, foot, foothold or representation or ability to engage in some meaningful way in this government? What does the response of people in other places around the world who are like us. Um, what, what do you think that response means for this struggle we continue to have for, you know, us searching for what other people are seem to be achieving or at least closer to organizing better around in other parts of the world? Mm-hmm. Well, um, I know that it does mean that it's dem- and demonstrates that the U.S. Um, government 
is the is the existential threat in the world, and that all those places, some of these places you name that have certain rights and have, have are achieving certain things, are always targets of U.S. That's their response to that. They're always targets of U.S. through sanctions and through misinformation and all type of any means that they can destabilize. Now, the other thing that it means, and because of that. Uh, and because of, and, and it's, you know, understandably why, it should be understandable why that is. I think some people are confused by it and they keep wondering why the U.S. keeps doing, the U.S. government keeps doing the things that it does to other countries. Some some people that are progressive-minded, but they not, they're not accepting the nature of the settler colonial system, the, the, cap, the white supremacy, capitalism, and patriarchal system that the U.S. is an extension of Western Europe. It's a pan-European uh, project. And so, and it has always been. It's been enough, nothing but that. And so, once we accept that, we don't. We should be. And this is the lessons from other countries. When you go to other countries and and you can start talking about imperialism and whatnot, we even experienced this lifetime. Well, we ask. We had a um, like a a seminar on the zone of peace. You know, Black Lives for Peace is trying to establish a zone of trying to build the movement, the civil society aspect component to the to the CELAC declaration in 2014 calling for Latin America to be a zone of peace. Uh, that was happening in Havana, in Havana, Cuba, and the CELAC is the, the community of, of Latin American and Caribbean states. Now, this was a state call, but obviously it's in the interest of the people, and we need to have a people-centered approach, at least a component to this, right, for it to be devised and emerged, you know, and many out of the interest of the people. So when we, so we had this seminar, I don't want to get too far about getting too far off, but in this seminar that we actually held uh, in Managua, the, and we've experienced this before, maybe Sean and you have experienced it, where people, we say, we ended after and say, oh, I'm sorry, it wasn't the seminar. I'm confusing it. It was a, a talk with two uh, um, Nicaraguan people after the seminar was over, and it was took place in the same venue. And they were just telling us about certain things with the country, and they were talking to us. Uh, and the, after it was over, we said, do you have any questions for us? And then they said, and this is, I've heard this so many times, it was kind of, I, I have to paraphrase the question, but kind of like, what's up with the left movement in the U.S.? You know, why can't, you know, why does it seem so difficult? And they, they raised the question of mobilizations under which happened with George Floyd and different things. And, and they can see that the people are, certain things are happening against our interests, but can't really understand why we can't uh, formulate uh, a response or, or opposition or assert our interests in an organized way. Um, and I think, and it was an interesting question. I've got that before. Um, but I think what it is is there's so much reformism in the movement. There's so much, oh, we just need to convince the people in government to do the right thing. Uh, and so many, that one is an expression of siloed, taking uh, issues in a siloed manner. There's, there's environment over here, and then there's healthcare there, and then there's stop doing this to this country here and, and only one country and then the other country there. It's all siloed and it's all scattered and doesn't assert that the whole system needs to be revamped, that the rulers need to be deposed. I mean, that's what the other the other movements have done. They don't go and say, well, let's, you know, they don't appeal and beat dead horses and, and try to get the corrupt rulers and leaders to do them. They depose them and they have a revolution. 
And so I think that's what is the answer here, the fact that people here can't put their mind around for many reasons, because some people just don't, they're scared of the implications of what a revolution means. Some of them, because it's the, it's so, uh, you know, different interests with like you know, ethnic-wise or race-wise, the U.S. is very obviously very divided race-wise. And then the infiltration or the or the machinations of the nonprofit and just these NGOs and all that and, and muddying the waters with their their reform and how they help make us see look at things in, in terms of reforms and getting what you want. Uh, people don't think about how we need to wage a more solidified radical movement that deposes the rulers, that deposes the oligarchy. This is an oligarchy, you know, unquestionably. And people think that they're gonna make it act right you know, get the rich to pay their fair share, that kind of crazy stuff, you know, and different things like that. It's like, well, the rich ain't, you know, they run the government. They're not going to be paying no fair share. None. It's not even about paying. Everything's not about money either. Things are about treatment, the repression that we face by militarized repression by police and all kind of things, you know, disregard in terms of, because you can get the, say you get the rich to pay, quote unquote, I mean, this is a big Hypothetically, they pay their fair share, and then what are the rulers, the, the government, uh, the corrupt government, going to do with that money that they get from the rich? You can't even get them to stop shuffling money to the military-industrial complex defense contractors. Why do you want to? Is that really? So anyway, uh, I kind of straight off, but this is the, me. The lessons we get from we go to the places like Nicaragua or any place, and then we even pay attention to the the left in other countries. It should be the, you know, and they're waiting for us to get, you know, get ourselves together. They're suffering the most, especially the ones that have had a revolution, have socialism going on. Their suffering comes mostly because of imperialism, because of them being targeted and being stable. And so, and the only way to stop that, you're not going to stop because we just talked about how, you know, people, legislators or, or policymakers like Ilhan Omar or whatever are completely backwards, even the so-called progressive ones are completely backwards when it comes to the foreign policy or, you know, foreign policy. So the only issue then is we have to have radical, you know, a radical transformation and radical people and a radical ethos dominating things. So that's the lesson I get from it. Definitely. We're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. Nepa Freeman is here. And Nepa... You mentioned a moment ago uh, about the the class character of imperialism. I think that's very important in terms of considering just who benefits 
from imperialism and who is the most hurt by it. You know what I mean? And given what you heard uh, on your trip there to Nicaragua and their questions about um, the left elements in the United States, and given what we you know, are seeing happening uh, within places, not only in Latin America, but in the Horn of Africa, as we've been discussing, and uh, some of these other regions of the world, I mean, where do you think the anti-imperialist movement in the U.S. should really be focusing its, its attention right now? Because because it seems to me that um, although at least I would argue that uh, uh, imperialism uh, seems to be uh, on the decline, it's still very much in place and isn't necessarily going to be dislodged anytime real soon. And so as a movement, how do you think we should be orienting ourselves to these uh, uh, different developments that may have uh, uh, different consequences, but are all sort of emanating from the same system? Good question. I, I really believe that it should be the anti-imperialism um, has to not be seen as solely an issue of uh, how the U.S. is showing up in other places outside of its borders. It has to be married with a domestic, you know, being for something else domestically. And, you know, that's what, that's where we get the deposing the rules. You know what I mean? To me, when I say deposing the rules, I know people might get scared with that. We say it, but hey, you know, the institutions, the buttress, the system have to be discredited and they have to be, you know, deemed illegitimate by the masses of the people most impacted by it. So I think that the anti-imperialist movement, or the, I think it's anti-imperialism should be one aspect of a broader movement against capitalism and, and, and patriarchy and white supremacy and whatnot. And when we look at those three things and how they show up, so imperialism is showing up outside, you know, external to internationally, external to the U.S. or some other European country where it is. And then, the, but it does also have domestic manifestations and that those domestic manifestations are interrelated, interconnected with the global manifestations. If we were to look at, let's take Nicaragua, for example, and we looked at things like the the, uh, U.S. involvement in the Contra War, that had direct implications for our communities here because it spread the epidemic of crack cocaine. The Contras and the CIA was working with these country enlisted forces to smuggle cocaine, you know, into the country, crack cocaine, and 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 end up being the crack epidemic. So it's like you can see that the contra war itself. I mean, that itself, as any other and, and any other, um, and we can say the same thing with Vietnam, Afghanistan, the same thing with drug epidemics. So they they engage in drugs and and drug smuggling, the military actually engaging in it, and then wage a war on drugs against the people domestically criminalizing the people for something that they created. So I think we have to start looking, getting people also to look at, there's a movement getting people to look at the um, the interconnection of things, getting people away from uh, deference to reformism, understanding that reforms, and uh, not reforms, but we can, because I separate reforms from reformism, um, but because you can have a reform that's power building and movement, you know, power shifting toward the people and and can be part of a broader strategy to uh, revolutionary transformation. But then you have reformism, which is antithetical to revolutionary transformation, two different things. And it's just kind of, you know, giving these little changes. But I think the answer to your question really has to uh, rest in in kind of a, a lifting up the the struggle the, the domestic struggle, the internal struggle which, of colonized people, because we call them colonized, 
indigenous and African people in this country are basically under the same conditions, all the conditions that we face politically, culturally, economically, are tantamount to being colonized. That's exactly what they are. And so once we wage an anti-colonial struggle, a struggle of self-determination that is inextricably bound up with our principles for that those same rights to other people, then I think we, you know, we have something there. So people will be able to see clearer too the necessity of deposing the rulers and establishing, having power ourselves, the ability to, to, um, to uh, enact and, and implement an idea, program, policy. Uh, and the capacity to protect the outcome, which means we also have to look at how do we defend ourselves from this thing. You know, I mean, they're killing us in the streets just regularly, you know, with impunity. And they don't, the response that we get, the response that we give, rather, to them is really just kind of more stop doing it and some kind of reform stuff and and looking at them as isolated incidents. And I'm not blaming the people. I don't want to make it sound like that. I think this has a lot to do with their ability to, to spin things with the media because the media is a very powerful tool that they have. So we really have to be able to find a way to break through the messaging that they're able to uh, have amplified more louder than, than our messaging. Um, but, yeah, that was my initial response. And, you know, this this thing of messaging, particularly as this war, this proxy war in Ukraine drags on, I feel like the U.S. government through the U.S. military is now deflecting or trying to deflect attention from the failure, the utter absolute failure of the U.S. gambit in Ukraine to fight Russia with now this weird propaganda campaign that they are mounting against China, saying that, you know, the Chinese military has become more aggressive and dangerous. And I don't know about you, Netfa, but that sounds kind of like the same war drum beating, fear mongering. Oh, my God, Russia's about to invade Ukraine. Uh, you know, the, the sky is falling kind of of propagandized that Biden did before they provoked the uh, Russian military response in Ukraine. I, I, I just don't think that I think that once again, the U.S. is biting off more than, in, than it can chew. But I think we are so overwhelmed by the propaganda, Netfa, that we we're having a hard time uh, seeing through this messaging and doing what you said we need to do to drown out that messaging. Yeah, and they, and they have, it has to be accompanied by their propaganda, otherwise people will see through it. Uh, but I, I also think that the U.S. has no other choice. Um, I mean, when I say the U.S., we, you know, we're talking about the government and we're talking about the ruling class that really tells the government what to do. It, imperialism, as by its very nature, and capitalism, by its very nature, has to feed it's a monster, and it can't really survive without that, anything else. And so what really seems illogical to many people, and I was kind of looking at it from this, it's really logical when we understand the nature of imperialism. It has really, it's an unsustainable system that really can't do anything else but what it's doing. It's not just about the, the. it's made up of a lot of interest and conscious, you know, acts by people, I guess, a, a class. But at the same time, when we look at it as a, as a, as a machine, you know, a, a non-thinking is for non-called. It's not a thinking machine. It's just, you know, it's just going that it, it's, you know, that it just keeps doing what it's doing. This is very dangerous what they're doing with China. It just doesn't, you know, it's, it's, 
it's very dangerous. But um, and then you can see that China's even responding with, hey, you know, they're not going to. They're not going to surrender. None of these none of these people that the U.S. has never really encountered uh, when they do these things. They never encountered a party, uh, an opposition that surrenders to them. When does that ever happen? You know, and, and so it's a very dangerous situation. And like you mentioned, I think I don't think people understand the gravity of it. Uh, it could really spill into you know uh, we're talking about really a World War Three. Situation, but I think they really in a desperate pursuit for survival itself. Imperialism is in a stage of the state, state of desperation and needs markets. It needs all kinds of things that it needs to survive, and it's not. It's waning in terms of its uh, influence. So, yeah, that's a fact in terms of its uh, waning influence. Is why we see Washington flailing in the way that it does. I mean, you know, we've been talking about uh, U.S. President Joe Biden's recent trip to uh, the Middle East, you know, to Saudi Arabia, which I was, you know, I think for him just downright embarrassing and another um, a foreign policy flop. Uh, uh, similar to what we've saw at the, the summit of the Americas and all these sorts of things. I mean, it just kind of feels like the Biden administration has taken L after L after L and the uh, the establishment leadership of the Democratic Party, or at least the wing of the party, seems to be taking note of that as well, which is why we're seeing more and more sort of public pronouncements um, voicing a, uh, a frustration with Biden and, you know, a, de- a desire for him not to run again in 2024 for the sake of the health of the organization. Now, how that will play out, we'll just have to see. Uh, but the fact that uh, that narrative has even arisen, even after we were told that uh, Joe Biden was going to be the one that was going to save us, uh, uh, you know, from the legacy of the Trump administration, that he was going to undo everything that Trump did and and serve as the antithesis or the antidote of the Trump administration, that you know, quite simply and clearly has not happened. And the American people are very aware that it has not happened. And as such, this contributes to um, uh, not only Biden's sort of dwindling approval rates, but also, I think, a kind of dwindling faith in uh, uh, the electoral uh, political systems and processes that this country has and has told us for so long is sort of the ultimate in political exercise. So as organizers, as movement people, what that means is we have to be cognizant and aware of this shifting consciousness and then seek to intervene directly to organize people so that all that frustration and all of that uh, righteous rage that they feel rightfully should be channeled toward a productive uh, uh, way in order to overturn this vicious system. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thing, Neffa Freeman, so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with all new episode so as always we'll see you next time peace by any means necessary